Scripture reading this morning is going to be Acts 13, verses 44 down through chapter 14, verse 7. Uh, as I've mentioned many times, chapter breaks are not original to the Bible. Those were added by people centuries later, and sometimes uh, they sort of interrupt the flow of the text. So we're going to just ignore the chapter break and run right through it this morning. Uh, if you would all stand together for the reading of God's Word. Acts 13, starting in verse 44, we'll read down through verse 7 of chapter 14. The next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. But when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and began to contradict what was spoken by Paul, reviling him. And Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly, saying, It was necessary that the word of God be spoken first to you. Since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life, behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. For so the Lord has commanded us, saying, I have made you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. When the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. And the word of the Lord was spreading throughout the whole region. But the Jews incited the devout women of high standing and the leading men of the city, stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas, and drove them out of their district. But they shook off the dust from their feet against them, and went to Iconium. And the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. Now at Iconium they entered together into a Jewish synagogue, and spoke in such a way that a great number of both Jews and Greeks believed. But the unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brothers. So they remained for a long time, speaking boldly for the Lord, who bore witness to, to the word of his grace, granting signs and wonders to be done by their hands. But the people of the city were divided. Some sided with the Jews and some with the apostles. When an attempt was made by both Gentiles and Jews with their rulers to mistreat them and to stone them, they learned of it and fled to Lystra and Derbe, cities of Lyconia and to the surrounding country. And there they continued to preach the gospel. Our Heavenly Father, we ask that you would bless our time in your word this morning. Uh, help us to learn and grow and take some important lessons from Scripture today. Uh, I pray that each one of us would be receptive to what it is that the Spirit of God has for us to learn. In the name of Christ we pray. Amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> well, if you spend any time at all uh, on the internet, and particularly interacting with people who claim to be Christians on the internet... Uh, you'll find out very quickly that there is a huge movement of people today who claim to follow Jesus, and yet they somehow fit in perfectly uh, with everything that our secular culture believes. There are people who claim to be Christians, and yet they don't think it's important to be a part of a local church. They're sort of against uh, what they would call organized religion. Uh, they claim to follow Jesus, and yet it, at times they even support things like abortion. Uh, they say that they love Jesus. They also think gay marriage is just wonderful. Uh, they say, yes, I'm a Christian, but all religions lead to God, whether you're a Buddhist, a Muslim, or a Christian, we will all end up in heaven together someday. These are people who claim to be followers of Jesus, and at some point you have to wonder what Jesus they're talking about. No doubt if Jesus had come in our day, he would have been called a hateful bigot, uh, you know, because he believed in things like men and women. Uh, but beyond that, if you think of Jesus as just a soft, tolerant person that, that went around affirming everyone, uh, never saying anything controversial, uh, I don't know what Jesus we're talking about. 
Because as you read the Gospels, Jesus regularly said things that offended people because Jesus spoke the truth. He didn't go around being a jerk for no reason. That's not the point. It wasn't his uh, personality, per se, that drove people away at times. It was what he was saying, the fact that he spoke the truth clearly. If you're bold enough to speak truth, inevitably, you'll get a mixed reaction. Some will embrace the truth, while others not only reject it, but actually hate you for saying it. Here are just a few examples of this from the teaching ministry of Jesus. If you were with us through our series through Luke, uh, you remember some of these things where Jesus regularly caused people to just become vehemently angry with him at the things that he said. Over in John 6, Jesus had said some things that caused offense to his listeners. We're not going to get into that uh, teaching per se, but look at the reaction here. Verse 60 of John 6, when many of his disciples heard it, they said, this is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, do you take offense at this? And then in verse 65, he said, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So he just alienated a whole group of his followers. They turned around and left. Verse 67, Jesus said to the twelve, do you want to go away as well? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. The disciples said in essence there that what Jesus was teaching, yes, it was a hard saying, it was offensive, it was difficult for them to accept, but they weren't going to leave when the others did because they were convinced that what Jesus taught was true, including the hard stuff. They were convinced that he really was the Son of God and that he was teaching the words of eternal life. Jesus said in John 12, I have come into the world as light, so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. Jesus came to call those in darkness and in sin to come into the light. He came to pull those lost in their sins to repent and believe the gospel so they might have their lives transformed. And here's Christianity in a nutshell. John 12, 36, Jesus said, while you have the light, believe in the light that you may become sons of the light. So Jesus says, I have come as the light of the world. Believe in me, follow my ways, and you'll become sons of the light. And then Jesus sends us out as lights into the world to win others to Christ. And the light spreads until the world is one to Christ and is living in submission to him. But in the meantime, not everyone embraces the light. John 3.19, Jesus said, this is the judgment. The light, speaking of himself, has come into the world, and people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. So Jesus comes preaching the truth, calling men to repent of their sins and follow him. And some people respond to that message with belief. They embrace Jesus as Lord, while others reject him. They hate the light. They oppose Jesus and his mission to redeem the world from sin. They nail him to a cross and kill him. They hated Jesus because he exposed their sin. And many people today hate Jesus and they hate Christianity because it exposes your sin. Jesus said in John chapter 7, The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify about it, that its works are evil. So he comes to pull people out of darkness to walk in his light 
But some people preferred to stay in the dark. They would rather live a life of sin than repent and submit to Jesus' commands. And so the coming of Jesus brings division. That's the point I'm trying to get across here. Jesus divided people into two groups, sons of the light and sons of darkness. And the difference was that the sons of the light embraced him and followed his teaching, and the sons of the darkness rejected him in favor of their sin. This is why he said in Luke 12, Do you think that I have come to give peace on earth? No, I tell you, but rather division. Now, don't be confused. There is a sense in which Jesus does bring peace. He is called the Prince of Peace, after all. Jesus came to bring us peace with God. When we repent of our sins and embrace the gospel, his death on the cross pays our sin debt, and we are justified in the sight of God. And so we have our relationship with God restored. We are at peace with God. And there's also a sense in which Jesus brings peace among humans. Because those who embrace Christ as Lord, regardless of our ethnicity, regardless of our uh, past life or previous religion, none of that matters. We're brought together as one body in Christ. But there's also a sense in which Jesus brings division. Because there are always going to be those who reject the light of Christ. And so when we turn the page to the book of Acts and we see the history of the church of Jesus Christ following his resurrection and ascension to heaven, we shouldn't be surprised that they faced the same kind of opposition, the same duality of responses. Some people accepted their message, some people hated them for their message. Jesus had warned his followers in John 15, if the world hates you, know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, if you were following their ways, doing everything that they approve of, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, because I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. And as I read through the book of Acts, I'm struck by how different <clears throat> the early church was from the church in America today. Uh, sure, there are some similarities, but the church in Acts was a force in the world. <clears throat> as we're working our way through this first uh, missionary journey, we'll see as Paul and Barnabas roll into town, uh, they shake things up everywhere that they go. The whole city knows who they are very quickly, and they all have an opinion about them. And in some ways, of course, the difference today is one of context here in America uh, pretty much everybody has heard of Jesus. They know something about uh, Christianity. We're not going into a, you know, a new place that's never heard of Christ. And so there's a difference there. There's a difference also in the fact that today, at least for now here in America, we have freedom uh, to preach the gospel, to believe the Bible, to worship Jesus without fearing persecution. Whereas in the early church, persecution followed them everywhere they went. But I also think we just lack some of the boldness that the early followers of Jesus had. They proclaimed the message of salvation in Christ with an ultimatum. Repent and believe the gospel or you will face God's judgment. Now, that was essentially Paul's sermon last week in the synagogue. After he showed these Jewish men through their Old Testament that it was pointing to Christ, that it was prophesying his death and resurrection for their salvation from sin, Paul then concluded that sermon with these words. <clears throat> Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And by him, everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. Now, that's a huge point considering who he's talking to. 
He's in a synagogue. He just walked into the, the meeting place of the Jews. And he says to them they needed to abandon their religion and follow Jesus. Their keeping of the law and their offering of sacrifices, all of that could not free them from the condemnation for their sin. Only through Christ could they be forgiven. And then Paul goes on to say this in verse 40, Beware, therefore, lest what is said in the prophets should come about. Look, you scoffers, be astounded and perish, for I am doing a work in your days, a work that you will not believe, even if one tells it to you. And so he ends the sermon with that line in the sand. He says, you cannot be saved through keeping the Old Testament law, so turn to Jesus and experience freedom and forgiveness. But also be warned that if you scoff at this offer of salvation, you will perish. And as we'll see in a few moments, that's exactly what they do. That's not exactly a typical American version of Christianity where we tell people to give Jesus a try. No, there's some authority here. Paul is laying out the truth in black and white terms, calling for a decision to be made. And then we saw last week the response of the people in verse 42. As they went out, the people begged that these things might be told them the next Sabbath. So there's a lot of interest here. Uh, they're curious. They're interested. Verse 43, after the meeting of the synagogue broke up, many Jews and devout converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas, who, as they spoke with them, urged them to continue in the grace of God. And so the meeting is scheduled for the next Sabbath to continue teaching them the gospel. Maybe they have some questions. Uh, they want to hear more about this Jesus. And so Paul and Barnabas are invited to return the next Sabbath to preach again in the synagogue. Now, the Jewish leaders here in Antioch of Pisidia are not happy about all of this. The common people are very excited. They, they have an interest in what these Christians are saying. And this ends up leading to some jealousy from the Jewish leadership. And all of this sets up the conflict we're about to see in our text, beginning with verse 44. The next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. So this little synagogue is just loaded with people. Verse 45, but when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and began to contradict what was spoken by Paul, reviling him. And so seeing the excitement and the interest that Paul and Barnabas had raised in their preaching of Jesus, the Jewish leadership realizes that they're losing influence over the people. And they begin to oppose Paul and Barnabas publicly. Verse 46 says, after Paul and Barnabas, I'm sorry, and Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly, saying, It was necessary that the word of God be spoken first to you, to the Jews, since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life. Behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. By the way, note what Paul says there. You have thrust aside the word of God. You are judging yourselves as unworthy of eternal life. In other words, there is no salvation from sin apart from the gospel. They had rejected Jesus, and as Jesus himself said, no one comes to the Father except through him. And Paul just wants to make it explicit to them that if you're going to reject Jesus in the message of this gospel, you're rejecting eternal life. We ought to make that clear in our gospel presentation as well. We ought to plead with people to come to Jesus, to have their lives transformed to live an abundant life of following Jesus, but there also needs to be an honest and clear warning that if you reject Christ, you are rejecting the only hope that humanity has. Jesus is the only way of salvation. Paul makes that very clear. They had rejected Christ, their Messiah, and so now he is going to turn to the Gentiles because the gospel isn't just for the Jews. 
It goes to them first, but ultimately, Christ means to rule over all people. So he goes on to say in verse 47, For so the Lord has commanded us, saying, I have made you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. And this would have driven the Jews even more insane. Uh, The idea that Jesus, their Jewish Messiah, the fulfillment of their Old Testament scriptures, now he's going to include non-Jews in his kingdom. And since the Jews had rejected Paul's message, they turned to the Gentiles in the city and they began preaching the gospel to them. And so this seems to be the very first church established primarily of Gentile converts to Christianity. Uh, The other churches that we've seen, normally they start off with uh, Jewish converts to Christ and then maybe some Gentiles slip in. Uh, Here in Antioch of Pisidia, the Jews reject Jesus. And so Paul turns to the Gentiles and establishes a church here uh, among them. Verse 48, when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. And the word of the Lord was spreading throughout the whole region. Now, that last phrase at the end of verse 48 is very significant. And I don't want to just gloss over it. It'd be easy, easier for me to, frankly. Uh, but I think we need to think about this. As many as were appointed to eternal life believed. This brings up the debate surrounding the subject of Calvinism. And if you're unfamiliar with Calvinism, it's the belief that God has chosen Uh, those who are saved. That before the foundation of the world, God in his grace chose certain people so that when the gospel is preached, those whom God has chosen will respond with faith and repentance. God opens our eyes. He gives us hearts that will believe the gospel. Now, this concept leads to a lot of follow-up questions and points that I am not going to get into. Some of those, I think, are very debatable. But the basic idea here, I think, is true. It's taught many places in Scripture, including right here in Acts 13. If you have embraced the gospel, it's because God chose you and drew you to himself. He did a work in your heart to open your eyes to the truth of the gospel. Why he chooses some and not all, what that choice is based on, uh, those kinds of follow-up questions, I don't think we have clear answers to in Scripture. I think uh, God doesn't answer all of our questions about that, and he expects us to trust him. But a verse like this one in Acts 13 seems to me clear enough to understand the fact that God is sovereign over who will be saved. Uh, Let's look uh, at the phrase in question a bit more closely here. Acts 13, the end of verse 48 says, As many as were appointed to eternal life believe. Notice first that the appointment is to eternal life. Uh, Some try to avoid the subject of the doctrine here by saying that God chooses us for specific tasks. Uh, something maybe after salvation. Uh, That may all be true, but that isn't what Acts 13 says. This is about being chosen or appointed to eternal life. Next, notice that it says the appointment to eternal life is not the result of belief. It's the exact opposite. Belief is the result of having been appointed. It doesn't say as many as believed were appointed to eternal life. No, it says as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. They believed as a result of the fact that they were chosen. Notice thirdly that the appointment to eternal life precedes their belief. They were appointed to eternal life before they believed the gospel. So those who were appointed believed. Uh, They were chosen prior to this moment when they actually placed their faith in Christ and were saved. They, They believed the gospel now because they had been chosen to sometime in the past. 
Lastly, notice that as many as were chosen believe. There is a one-to-one -one correlation here. It doesn't say most of those chosen believed. All of them. As many as were chosen, that's exactly how many believed. No one believed the gospel that wasn't appointed to eternal life, and none of those appointed failed to believe. All of those that were chosen placed their faith in Christ. Now, one of the most common explanations of this doctrine of election God choosing is the theory that God looks down the corridors of time. He chooses those whom he knows in the future will believe the gospel. And so the reason they were appointed to eternal life is because God knew that they would receive the gospel when they heard it. Uh, I cannot make sense of this phrase with that understanding. As many as God knew would believe, he chose them to have eternal life, and because of that appointment they believed, uh, that, I, I don't even know what point that would be making, why this phrase would be here if that's what, what it meant. Why talk about being appointed or chosen to have eternal life if God's choice was based on our receiving the gospel? Why complicate everything with this election stuff? Why not just say some people chose to believe and they were saved? That would be much simpler if that's what was being said here. No, it's clear from this verse that the appointment leads to the belief, not the other way around. And as I said, there's a lot of follow-up questions when you bring up this uh, subject, and I will only answer two of them now. And I'm only going to answer two questions because those are the easy ones to answer. I'll leave the hard ones for another time. Uh, first, you may be wondering, how do you know if you're a part of this group that has been chosen? Uh, whatever reasons God has for choosing those that he does, however that all works, how can I know that I've been appointed to eternal life? Well, it's very simple. Believe the gospel. Do you believe? Have you given your life to Jesus? If so, you're part of the, those who are appointed to eternal life. That's the evidence. And so if you're a follower of Jesus, if you've placed your faith in his death for your sins, his resurrection from the dead, you don't need to worry about whether or not uh, you've been appointed to eternal life. That is the evidence that you have. Second question, do we need to try to figure out who the chosen ones are? And the very simple answer to that is no, uh, we couldn't anyway. If we were trying to figure out who God had chosen to become a Christian, none of us would have guessed uh, Saul of Tarsus, the guy who went around arresting Christians and having them killed. Uh, we have no idea who God is going to draw to himself, and so we should preach the gospel to everyone and let God sort out who responds uh, with faith. <coughs> Excuse me. Paul says in this very sermon, uh, back in verse 38, Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man's forgiveness, uh, sorry, through this man, speaking of Jesus, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And by him, everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. So everyone who believes, he says, has eternal life. Embrace our gospel, the message that we're preaching. Turn to Christ and you will be saved. You will be given eternal life. Paul gave that message to the whole crowd there. Some of them thrust it aside and were condemned. Those who were appointed to eternal life believed. But Paul had no idea uh, who was in which group. He had no clue how they were going to respond, and neither do we. And so we preach the gospel, and those that God has chosen will receive it and turn to Christ. And by the way, in a sense, this really should embolden our witness for Jesus. The fact is, sometimes I'm convinced that someone will never become a Christian. They just don't seem like the type of person that would ever give up a life of sin or give up their pride or whatever it is. It's easy for us to look at the neighbor next door who's 
a sweet old lady. She goes to church every, every Easter and Christmas, and we think, yeah, I could see her uh, becoming a Christian. I, I should try to give her the gospel. But then we look at our, our other neighbor, who's a very proud atheist who mocks Christianity, and we think there's no way. There's no way he'll ever be saved. But the fact is, salvation isn't a matter of us conjuring up faith in ourselves. It is a work of God in the hearts of people. And so the question isn't really, is this person likely to be saved, but rather, could God save this person? And the answer to that question is always yes. So the fact that it is a work of God means that no one is out of the question. God can soften even the hardest of hearts. He can orchestrate circumstances in people's lives, convict them of their sin and their need of salvation. And you and I would have no idea all of what God is doing in their hearts. And so we ought to give the gospel indiscriminately to everyone and see what the Lord will do. And that's exactly what Paul and Barnabas do here. They've been rejected by the Jews. They've offered the, the gospel of Christ to them, and they have thrust it aside. They have said, no, we don't want that. And so Paul and Barnabas begin preaching to the Gentiles in the city. And the gospel spreads throughout this whole region as God's elect were drawn to salvation. Verse 50, but the Jews incited the devout women of high standing and the leading men of the city stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas and drove them out of their district. Remember how this all started. Jesus divides people. Whenever we clearly present Christ and our need for salvation, there's a division that will inevitably take place. Those appointed to eternal life will believe, and that's what motivates us to keep preaching, but at the same time, we must also anticipate that there will be some who oppose us. And in this case, it was the leaders of the city who stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas. We're not told specifically what that looked like, but in a few verses, we'll see there's an attempt on their lives. But in the end, they are driven out of town. Verse 51, they shook off the dust from their feet against them and went to Iconium. This was a sign of judgment against the city. Jesus instructed his followers, whenever you're rejected by any city, to shake the dust off of your feet against them. And so they go to Iconium. As you can see here from the map, Iconium is the next major city over from Antioch and Pisidia. It's about 100 miles between the two cities. And verse 52, I think, speaks of uh, the new converts to Christ that, that had been made back in Antioch of Pisidia. The Jewish leaders were angry. The Paul and Barnabas are driven out of town, but then verse 52 says the disciples were filled with joy and the Holy Spirit. So these would be the Gentiles who were uh, thrilled at first to have been given the opportunity to come to Christ. They were filled with the Spirit. And so even though Paul and Barnabas are being pushed out of town here by the, the persecution of the leaders, there are still some new disciples that had been made. Uh, some good had, had taken place in that city. And so as we'll see in the next chapter, we'll find out later, Paul goes back here and there's a church there. Uh, so, so the gospel did have an effect here in Antioch of Pisidia, though it also had, had an adverse effect of, of some opposition as well. Verse 1 of the next chapter continues the story. Verse 1, now at Iconium, they entered together into the Jewish synagogue, and spoke in such a way that a great number of both Jews and Greeks believed. So here they didn't receive a total rejection from the Jews like in the last city. Here, some Jews and some Gentiles received the gospel in Iconium. And presumably, Paul did the same thing here that he had done in the last, uh, the last city. We saw at length the sermon that he gave there. He would have done the same thing here. 
You go into the synagogue, you show from the Old Testament scriptures that Jesus is the Jewish Messiah, that he is Savior and Lord. He died for our sins. He offers us salvation if we'll embrace him as Lord. And so he comes here and does the same thing. Uh, it's interesting as you read through the book of Acts, just the resilience of Paul. He gets kicked out of the synagogue, persecuted. There's threats on his life. And so he just goes to the next town, goes right back into the synagogue there and begins doing the same thing over again. And here in Iconium, many people are converted under the preaching of Paul and Barnabas. But again, there is that division created. This becomes really the whole theme of this section, how the gospel draws some to Christ and causes others to be really upset. Verse 2, But the unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brothers. So there's this opposition from the Jews, just like back in Antioch of Pisidia. There's this effort made to turn people against Paul and Barnabas. Verse 3, So they remained for a long time, speaking boldly for the Lord, who bore witness to the word of his grace, granting signs and wonders to be done by their hands. They're here for a long time, Luke says, which is vague enough. That could be months, maybe it's years, uh, but I would say probably at least a period of months here. And during this time, they are able to speak openly the gospel. God is bearing witness to their message with signs and wonders that they did. Uh, we've seen this under the apostolic ministry in Jerusalem. Uh, many miracles and things were being done there. And now under the ministry of Paul as well. Signs and wonders are given to them to confirm their message. Verse 3, even with all of those miracles taking place, but the people of the city were divided. Some sided with the Jews and some with the apostles. This is one of the fascinating things about <clears throat> excuse me, Jesus' ministry as well. <clears throat> uh, he did many miracles. Nobody really ever denied that Jesus did miracles. They all saw him. Uh, healing the sick, even raising the dead, walking on water, uh, feeding thousands of people with a boy's lunch. Nobody could deny that Jesus performed true miracles. And yet, that reality did not cause everyone to embrace him. He was hated by some until they finally killed him. Because, again, he exposed their sin. He spoke truth, even when it was uncomfortable. Some people are drawn to the light, others prefer to stay in the darkness. And here in Iconium, we see this division taking place. The next verses tell us of an organized effort against Paul and Barnabas, verse 5, when an attempt was made by both Jews and Gentiles with their rulers to mistreat them and to stone them. They learned of it and fled to Lystra and Derbe, cities of Lyconia, and to the surrounding country. There they continued to preach the gospel. So fleeing persecution, uh, they head to Lystra and Derby, which are uh, suburbs of those cities. They continue to preach the gospel and establish churches throughout that whole region. And this characterizes much of Paul's life, as we'll see in the rest of the book of Acts. Uh, not only Paul, by the way, but presumably uh, all of the apostles had a similar ministry to Paul in this sense. They would go from one place to the other, preaching the gospel, being rejected, often having their lives threatened. Paul's life we, we know more about because Luke wrote it all down for us here in the book of Acts, but 11 of the other apostles gave their life for the gospel as well, and so they all experienced similar persecution because everywhere that they went, they preached the truth. They called people to turn from their sin and follow Jesus, and that always brings division. 
It's really a clash of two kingdoms, the kingdom of light and the kingdom of darkness. Some will become uh, emboldened. They'll embrace Christ. They'll turn to him in faith and repentance. They'll become followers of Jesus. Others will be put off by the truth being spoken. They'll reject Jesus and become hostile to Christianity. We close with these words from the Gospel of John. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God, whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light, that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God.